Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in a moment, it's called The Initiative, Advancing the Blue and Black Partnership. It involves local leaders, communities, and law enforcement officials. Part of the mission is to create what they see as scalable solutions that create systemic change in community policing. Part of it is teaching officers about officer resilience. Part of it is teaching officers how how we talk to citizens. All those things combined will make a better rounded police officer. And a conversation clearing up misinformation regarding COVID-19 vaccines and side effects in women. I said, at some point, you have to have a line in the sand where you say, there's enough data out there for me to be able to make a reasonable decision. I said, if there was going to be a big problem, we'd know about it by now. I'll speak with Atlanta-based OBGYN specialist, Dr. Genevieve Fairbrother. Those conversations on today's Closer Look. But first, these headlines from our WABE newsroom. Once again, there's another setback for the plant Vogel nuclear expansion. Georgia Power says delays in testing mean the first new unit is unlikely to start generating electricity before January. The delay is a costly one, adding another $48 million to the price tag of the entire project. That's all according to a disclosure from a hearing before the Georgia Public Service Commission. And the commission decides just how much Georgia Power customers must kick in for the $26 billion nuclear project. Finally, another beautiful weekend of weather is expected. In fact, on Sunday, temperatures could rise to the 90s. That also means more folks will be out and about, some with masks, some without. The head of Atlanta Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the agency is reviewing all its COVID-19 guidance. Dr. Rochelle Walensky says the CDC is looking at active COVID-19 guidance for places like businesses and schools to make sure it fits with last week's mass recommendation for fully vaccinated people. We have thousands of pages of guidance um, related to all sorts of sectors, and um, we are now working through those um, in the context of our new science-based guidance that was released on Thursday. Dr. Walensky says guidance for schools is unlikely to change for the rest of the academic year, as many children will not likely have the chance to get vaccinated before then. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The initiative, Advancing the Black and Blue Partnership. This nonprofit organization was founded by Howard University alum in the summer of 2020 following the death of George Floyd. And by the group's own definition, it seeks, quote, systemic change in community police relations through effective community policing. We're going to take that mission a little further. I'm joined now by Stoney Mathis, 
chief of police in the city of Fairburn, Georgia, and the executive director of the initiative, Nadine Jones. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. I want to begin with this question by definition, because for some people, it's problematic. For others, it's too vague or it's too broad. When we talk about effective community policing, how do you define that? And Chief, I'll start with you. Chief Mathis. Well, um, when we started this program, Nadine and Miss Emma asked me that question, what is community policing? And uh, there's no panacea to community policing. There's a, there's a bunch of programs out there that police chiefs and police departments do to kind of build relationships with the community. And they could be just any type of program. But what we found out is it doesn't matter what police departments do. Most police chiefs think they do community policing. And a lot of that is just not effective because they're not reaching the communities that they serve. So effective community policing is when police chiefs are putting programs and initiatives together that's actually reaching the communities that they're serving. Nadine Jones, I'll give you a chance to weigh in. How do you define then community policing? But I noticed that the chief said effective community policing. Effective community policing. So exactly what Chief Stoney just said. Um, but the, the, the key point in what he just said is how do you determine what is effective? There is a, there's a lot of literature out there a lot of wonderful police officers, such as Chief Stoney, who do this very well. And so what we did with the initiative, we kind of boiled it all together and created a scorecard. It's called Central, which allows police agencies to, to grade and determine where they land along the community policing continuum. So it's th- it is the vehicle by which the local police departments can interact and interface with members of the community, civilian members of the community in a proactive, positive way to create public safety. It really is just a a, a tool by which relationships and day-to-day interactions are forged for a greater purpose, which is the common vision of safer communities. That's really all it is. Well, with this tool, with this assessment, and I don't want to call it a checklist, but with this assessment that you all would like for police departments to analyze or self-grade themselves, what's on this this assessment? Well, we worked with a fabulous, actually, uh, Georgia company called, if I can say their name, Kaizen Analytics. Mm -hmm. They're based in Atlanta, where you are, Rose. And what we did was we created... um, a weighted scorecard based on interviews with uh, Chief Stoney and others of his high caliber of community policing. And we broke it down into three main categories, officer training, organizational development, and community engagement. No one area or pillar works in isolation Mm -hmm. from the other. It has to be holistic. So if you are incentivizing officers to write more tickets and you still and you want them to do community policing and be proactive, isn't that a bit incongruent, right? You want to reward and incentivize officers to engage in this type of proactive policing. So it's one of those holistic tools that mm-hmm. we have developed. Chief Mathis, when you went through this assessment for your own department, do you mind sharing what you came up with? What was eye opening for you? Well, actually, I was uh, with 
them from the very beginning. So we, I helped them come up with the kind of the scorecard mm -hmm. and it was just stuff that I had done in the past. There's certainly other police chiefs that do equally as good community policing initiatives. Uh, we, so we came up with the scorecard and then I took the assessment myself and I scored very well in the community policing side of it, but I did not score very well in the officer resilience side of it. Hmm. And um, so Miss Dadeen, what they do is not only do they come up with a scorecard to tell you where they're at, now they come up with, with ways that you can improve that scorecard over time. So since then, I've taken an officer resiliency course. So now I can teach my police officers a little bit more about officer resiliency. And if we're feeling better about ourselves, certainly we're going to treat the citizens better. Chief, can you take our listeners through what that training or what that model was like in terms of officer resiliency? Because I can hear someone saying, well, OK, Chief, but what does that mean? Take me through that. Well, one of the things that um, this class was a three-day class, train the trainer. I'm one of 25 uh, certified people in the state that can teach uh, other police officers how to go out and train people in this. Uh, one of the leading cause of death for police officers is suicide. And um, it's probably gotten more prevalent over the last years because of the stress and, and stuff that they're under. And um, along with that, we're having less people apply to be police officers because of that fact. So this class kind of teaches it's a little more huggy, feely uh, type relationship with your police officers, especially as a command staff police chief, that you build a relationship with your uh, police officers, just like you do with the community. And mm -hmm. I tell people this all the time to build trust with the, with anybody. You have to build a relationship and to build a relationship, you have to spend time with people. So that's what they're promoting is 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 police officers and, and command staff members and citizens spending more time with each other to build that trust. Chief, as then the trainer, what was some of the feedback, if you can share from your officers? Did some have concerns? Did some thought out say, you know what, this does not apply when we're out in the community or we're in a situation where it is tense or I, as an officer, have got to make a split decision. Does that really help them in that type of scenario? Yes, it should. Um, now, it's very difficult. Some of these police officers have been trained from the very beginning. When I got when I first got into law enforcement, we had a sergeant come into roll call. He said, All right, I want you to say how many tickets you can write today and how many people you can take to jail. So that's the mindset of a lot of these uh, officers that I have today. So we've got to change the culture of that. And if part of it is teaching officers about officer resilience, part of it is teaching officers how how we talk to citizens. All those things combined will make a better rounded police officer. We've got to get away from that mindset that we take everybody to jail and we write everybody tickets because there's a difference between the, the, the color of the law and the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Nadine, you hear what Chief Mathis is saying. I, I'm curious what other feedback you all have received from and you don't have to mention the department unless you want to. But what has been the feedback you all receive from those departments that have either taking the assessment and maybe have some issues or concerns. What have you all been hearing? The, the scoring is remarkably um, consistent in terms of trending. Not every agency scores as high as Chief Stoney's agency did, but in terms of the drop-off when it comes to officer wellness, it is consistent across each and every agency that has completed the scorecard to date. And um, for that reason, we... Um, partnered with an organization, LRN, of mm -hmm. course, and um, LRN is an ethics and corporate 
platform e-learning provider and all of the founders of the initiative, we are corporate attorneys by trade and so and with a compliance background. So we we incorporated this knowledge of how you infiltrate culture with policies and we built out a mindfulness tool. And it really is just to educate, it's a mindfulness tool for law enforcement. So mm -hmm. it's just to educate officers in terms of what's going on in your brain. There's nothing wrong with you. You are not defective. We noticed a lot of resistance to any type of conversation about wellness. I, I'm even hesitant to use the word because it implies that they are unwell. Mm -hmm. And so we just boiled it down to brain science and when you are dysregulated and we educate them, what's going on in your body? Are you grinding your teeth at night? Is there uncontrollable anger? Is there weeping? Is, you know, and then we provide them with techniques of how to get back into their window of tolerance. Just simple breathing techniques right there in the module with the hope that it will encourage them, like when they feel better, to do it again. But there is still pushback. And I've heard from different chiefs um they have bought in they see the value mm -hmm. and need help in getting for lack of a better word the rank and file mm -hmm. to buy in so this is not an area where your authority alone can change culture and we know this from the corporate world in compliance if the ceo says okay everybody just comply with the code of conduct policy no bribing no price fixing you know mm -hmm. that's not how human beings work sure. you actually have to educate and teach and infiltrate it into day-to-day -day, um activities and make it alive and meaningful so that's where we are right now if you're just joining us i'm in conversation with police chief stoney mathis from the city of fairburn georgia and nadine jones executive director of the initiative advancing the black and blue partnership and it's about initiatives aimed at seeking systemic change in community police relations through what they call effective community policing. Chief Mathis, let me ask you this. How critical then has it been for you to make sure you, you all have been using the term to buy in, but chief for your captains and commanders, do you have to get them to quote buy in first and then it filter down? Yes, um, changing the culture is certainly the chief's responsibility. But just like you said, I have to get the the uh, captains and the lieutenants to get buy-in and and sell it to them first, so they can get the troops to buy-in. Uh, here at Fairburn, I have 50 police officers, so it's a little easier for me to reach some of the the lower-ranking officers. But I retired from the Henry County Police Department, where we had 250 police officers, and it was more difficult to get some of the lower rank-and-file officers to buy into the community policing philosophy or a, a program like the initiative. But the initiative, when when police chiefs, just like you said earlier, they have to score themselves. And if they're mm -hmm. honest with themselves, the the initiative gives them ways that they can improve the, the product uh, that they're providing the citizens. And it's all about customer service. It's not a lot different from what Nadine does in the corporate world with compliance that we as police chiefs do with the citizens. It's all about providing good quality customer service. How then do you know how effective the assessment is? And is it something that you have to gauge over time? What metrics do you use to say, okay, you know what? This is working. I've noticed this or I've noticed that in, in my officers. 
here's how I know that it works because I've worked as the deputy chief of Henry County, as the chief of Chattahoochee Hills in Fulton County and now Fairburn. And every place I've worked, I've put to uh, put these initiatives in place. And every place, if you're doing a good, effective community policing, your crime rate goes down. And those are the numbers that you look at every day. You look at them daily. Mm -hmm. And if your crime rate's going down, your use of forces are going down, your complaints against police officers are going down, and th that metrics right there can tell you that community policing works. Nadine? Exactly. And we are tracking that in the same central tool. So we overlay a police agency's community policing score against um, publicly available data. Right now we're using the FBI's uh, uniform crime reports to track um, part one crimes, property crimes. And we expect to see over time a downward trend. If in fact the community policing scores keep going up, it should have an inverse impact mm -hmm. on the community um, on the violent crimes and, and other crimes. But we were also building out a community facing tool. It's just not ready, it's in demo. We're working with Kaizen to, to build that out. And we will assess the voice of the community because at the end of the day, the founders of the initiative were civilians, were black women, mothers, um, just ordinary folks. And um, we want everyone's voice to be heard. So we will be reaching out to the community member using technology uh, to get them to, to understand not just policing, because policing intersects so many other areas, mm -hmm. but we want to understand the health or the, 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 the well-being of the entire community, of which public safety and how they view their police officers is one component. Access to resources is, a, is another one. Um, mental and physical health is yet, you know, an access to those resources, another one. So let's see what's happening with the voice of the community. You'd be so, it's interesting to see, we've done some demos and there is fear mm -hmm. of police or mistrust mm -hmm. in some, right? So if you start to see those types of results declining, I think it's a strong indicator keep doing what you're doing. You're on the right track. So that's the best way that we can think of. And, and Stoney is right. We simply brought in concepts from the corporate world and infused it here with, a, with willing participants from the blue community. I have to give, you know, Chief Stoney and others a shout out. We didn't really expect to be received by the blue, but we were going in anyway. Mm -hmm. And we have been warmly received i have to say and this has all been taking place since last summer yeah since last summer it has been fast and furious when we started this conversation both of you admitted there are different approaches and someone even said there's a holistic approach to effective community policing um, each department is different what may work in a large urban area like atlanta may not work in fairburn or should it is that what you all are saying Yes. Um, what a police chief, a lot of times police chiefs are hired and they go into the community and they tell the community what kind of police services they're going to get. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the wrong way to look at it. You need to meet with the community, get the community's assessment of what kind of police services do they want, because oftentimes it's not the same. Mm -hmm. Nadine, you want to add anything to that? I do want to add something because, uh, yes, policing is local. So we've got 18,000 police agencies right across the United States, and mm -hmm. each one of them can very unique in many respects. But you know what's not unique? 
human beings and how we react to each other. And I'm not trying to get overly ph philosophical here, but if you, if we take the time to engage with each other in a respectful, in a productive manner and build relationships, we end up building relationships. And some of what we want to tackle in the space of policing, it is, in my belief, undergoing a tremendous transformation. A lot of big changes. And in order to get this done in a sustainable way, I just can't see how we do that when the baseline relationships are so fractured and shattered and non-existent, quite frankly, hostile mm -hmm. in so many communities. What is the platform on which these collaborative or these changes are going to rest? So community policing, I know it's a word that's been used a lot of overused, abused in some instances, mm -hmm. but Rose, it is just relationship building between police and local members of the community. Mm -hmm. And it's not just copy with a cop. It's something that is meaningful, something that is um, you have a common vision and a common goal and you recognize that to reach that goal you need the other person you can't get there by yourself as we wrap up and based on what you just said nadine you can't get there by yourself we've talked about the community we've talked about police departments what other stakeholders should be involved in this oh my goodness yes sorry to cut you off Rose. oh it's okay that's what you're supposed to do you know, the reason why we can move so quickly is because we tapped into just a phenomenal network. So LRN gave us the mindfulness training. We brought in our own subject matter experts, but we collaborated with their creative and platform development expertise. And we created, I think, a wonderful tool. They did it free, mm -hmm. pro bono. In, my, in the legal world, we call that pro bono. I don't know what it's called in the, in the corporate sense. And they free. committed free. Free. That's a good one. Free. Three, and at an, a level of excellence, we are working with a data analytics team, the one right there in Atlanta, Kaizen, and they're operating, I think, below cost. We are working with members of um, corporate sponsors, Microsoft, Lumina Foundation, my uh, company is Kunanagel Inc., all investing just resources in this space. So we're not all, we're never going to be police chiefs. There's only one Stony Mathis, let's say. Okay. <laughs> but we each have our own expertise and talent. And if the heart is willing to contribute into this space of policing and citizen relationships, because our hearts were liter literally broken last year, and you want to do something about it, there is an opportunity for you to bring what you have to the game and make it meaningful contribution. Absolutely, without a doubt. Chief Mathis, I'm gonna give you the last word. You've been in law enforcement for a number of years. You've been involved in all these conversations. You've seen and heard so many calls for reform, reforming how we do policing. Are we, through your lens, is this nation finally at a point where you believe there will be some effective change and how you all do what you're supposed to do, what you all pledge to do to protect the community. And so when we have these conversations about, well, we need to have more accountability, you obviously want to make sure you don't get to that, that phase of here we go again, talking about accountability and should this officer be sentenced and should this officer be charged? You want to prevent getting to that. 
community policing, policing in communities of color, especially. And I'm going to throw this in there to de-escalating tensious moments. I know that was yes. a lot. So um, I apologize. No, that's OK. Miss Rose, the first thing I'd like to say is that at least the conversations started. Uh, me meeting uh, Miss Nadine and Miss Emma, that wasn't by chance. This is this is a design. And this the program that they put together truly helps organizations uh, better understand the community and come up with ways to better serve the community. In reference to um, uh, change in law enforcement, it's going to take some time. I tell you why, because the culture is so ingrained. And, and of course, even men, Miss Nadine and Miss Emma, our um, ideology may not agree on everything because I don't I don't think that there's systemic racism in law enforcement. Half my police officers are African-American in Atlanta. Half their police officers are African-American. I don't think police officers innately become race. Our people innately become racist just because they become a police officer. I think it's a lack of training, a lack of compassion, a lack of understanding. And in law enforcement, until we as police officers realize that and change our culture, we're going to continue to have issues like we're having today. Do you believe there is an unconscious bias then for from some officers? And let's be clear, particularly maybe for some. No doubt. Okay. Absolutely. There's unconscious bias. I think everybody has bias that they unconsciously portray on other people. And it could be a multitude of reasons. But here, when they talk about defunding the police, the first area that a police department would defund is training. The most important thing we do, especially today, is train our police officers how to talk to people, how to get along with people. I often tell people this. Every time we make contact with a citizen, we either make a deposit or we make a withdrawal in respect that that person has in all law enforcement, not just in Fairburn, not just in Atlanta, but all law enforcement. So my goal with the community policing, uh, teaming up with the initiative is to continue to make these deposits because at some point somebody's going to make a withdrawal, maybe up in Minnesota, maybe out in California, but somebody's going to make a withdrawal. I don't want my citizens in Fairburn to think that we're all like that because we're certainly not. Chief, I want to ask you this question. Before I let you go, do you talk to new recruits? Do you talk to police academy? I guess you call them cadets. I'm not sure if that's the right word. But do you talk to those who are just entering the police academy to get a sense of who might be an officer someday in your department? What would you say to someone to think about before wanting to join any police department, before going to the academy? What internal self-assessment should they do? Well, actually, we do. When we start recruiting people, we try to look for a certain trait. Uh, uh, A lot of people get into law enforcement for the wrong reasons, and I think those are the ones that kind of give us all a bad name. So we look for certain traits that people have to get into law enforcement and compassion and love and passion into what this business uh, is that people do get into this business and sometimes they get into it for the wrong reason. So if we can weed them out before they ever get into the Academy, we're doing the, we're doing the profession a service and we're doing them a service because it allows them to go on to something else. They may be good at just law enforcement may not be it. Are you able to identify some signs early on or yes, is there, when, what are when they? I interview people that a lot of people do, do things a little bit backward, backwards. They'll take an application. They'll, do, they'll spend a lot of time and money doing, doing um, uh, backgrounds. And then we do polygraph tests. We do psychological tests. We do drug tests. When, after they turn in their application, I interview them first. Because some people, 
they just don't innately do not need to be police officers. And they will tell you who they are. You spend about 20 minutes, 30 minutes interviewing them, they'll tell you who they are. Hmm. Wow. It's called the Initiative Advancing the Black and Blue Partnership. The nonprofit organization was founded by Howard University alumni just this last summer following the death of George Floyd. Chief Stoney Mathis from the city of Fairburn, Georgia, executive director of the initiative, Nadine Jones. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. Ms. Rose, thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Side effects or even long-haul effects related to the three COVID-19 vaccines, we know they vary from person to person. What we also know is this. Researchers have been documenting symptoms in various population groups. And then there is the unscientific way of how folks observe presumed side effects. Social media. Online groups and conversations among women include noticing changes in their menstrual cycle and also the ongoing concerns about COVID-19 vaccines and its effect on pregnant women. As we all know, mixed messages and quite frankly the wrong information can often be distributed on social media. Dr. Genevieve Fairbrother is an OBGYN specialist in Atlanta, Georgia. She is affiliated with Northside Hospital and is the chief medical officer of the Atlanta Women's Health Group and is a board member for the U.S. Women's Health Alliance. And she joins me now to talk about all of this. And we should note, while Dr. Fairbrother is a physician and expert, you should always consult your own primary care doctor regarding any medical concerns. Dr. Fairbrother, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rose. Appreciate it. And I appreciate the time to spend with you. Let's begin here, because as I mentioned, the wrong information is often shared via social media. And as you know, that's been the case with COVID-19 and the vaccines. But I'm curious, what are those common questions you've been asked by your patients? Well, that's a interesting question. We have been heavily working on outreach to disabuse people of the common misconceptions that are out there. Mm-hmm. And we started very early on talking about how it wouldn't affect your DNA. We talked about that. There is zero evidence that it's going to impact infertility. That was one of the first ones that I would say that's the commonest one we get. And the interesting thing about that rumor is that we tell women 
that it, in order to be called infertile, they have to be trying for about a year mm -hmm. to even consider it. And this came out the first month the vaccine came out. So it was an impossibility just from the get go. So we have been continuing to battle that. I'll tell you in my patient population, women over 40 and over are like, heck yeah, I need that vaccine. But they worry about their children because mm -hmm. of the infertility stuff. And Dr. Fairbrother, how diverse is your patient group, not just in race and ethnicity, but also in age? Because that's going to be important moving forward with this conversation. My patients uh, range from 12, 13 years old, although that's very few of them. Mainly, I start seeing patients 16 to 18, and it extends up into uh, the early 70s. But of course, again, that's fewer. My majority of my patients are the fertile ages, so mid-20s to, I would say, 60. <laughs> fertile ages, no, mid-20s <laughs> to, sorry. Don't my scare people, Dr. Fairbrother. <laughs> my patients range, um, the majority of my patients are between the uh, 20s up to the early 60s. Let my me... patients are a range in age from the mid-20s to the early 60s. And as far as uh, racial diversity, my patient population reflects the diversity that is Atlanta pretty much to a T. Those patients who are fully vaccinated, have they been talking to you about any side effects or what they think might be from the vaccine? Particularly, I want to talk about changes in menstrual cycle. Have you had any conversations with your patients about that? Well, that's very interesting um, observation. I will tell you that the vast majority of my patients have not had any complaints. I think everybody notices symptoms when they first get the vaccine. I think I spend more time talking to patients about long hauler syndrome um, and their worries about it. And usually my patients don't have that. Mm -hmm. But they have a friend that has that who's still having chest pain, still having shortness of breath. As far as menstrual cycles are concerned, I did a little reading on that. And I have not had that complaint myself. And there is actually no scientific basis for that. I can um, certainly come up with some postulations as to why some people may experience that or may notice that. Um, one of them is that there's observation, what we call observation bias. Mm -hmm. you, had a, you have a period that kind of sucks this month. And it's true that a lot of women about once a year have a hiccup in their menstrual cycle, whether it's a terrible period or they skip a period. But then when you combine that with the fact that so many people are getting vaccines right now and they say, oh, gosh, you know, I had a really crappy period. Wait, I got my second Moderna shot two weeks ago. I felt like crap during those first 24 hours. Maybe that affected it. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing could be observation bias. Another thing is, is, you know, when you comes to having your cycle and what changes people's cycle, the only thing that's going to change that really is hormones. Mm -hmm. So you have to go back and think, what's the first principle behind that? How would your hormones change related to a vaccine? And we don't, I, there's no real connection, but I will tell you that stress, poor sleep, and illness absolutely can have an impact on your general health, which can have an impact on your menstrual cycle. But there's no direct correlation and nothing that the OB community is talking about. So based on that, 
Is there research out there that's starting to collect any data or, or information to connect these vaccines with specific side effects in women, or is it still just too early? I actually don't think it's too early. When people get a vaccine, a lot of them, because it's under that emergency use authorization and all eyes are on this vaccine, everybody is given an opportunity when they get their vaccine to sign up for VSAFE through the CDC. Mm -hmm. So that means how many vaccines have been given out in this country? About what, 120 something million people have been fully vaccinated and up to 230, probably more at this point, people have been vaccinated, received at least one vaccine. Mm -hmm. They are all given an opportunity to put their symptoms in. Well, everybody is on DEFCON 1. Okay, is anything going to happen to me? So they're tapping that stuff in. That's how we know, for instance, 100,000 pregnant women have been on VSAFE. And they're all looking to see if there's been any symptoms. And we haven't seen any issues with relationship to pregnancy. But the same would go for information around menstrual cycles. Now, it is true, we rolled this out from the oldest ages down. Mm -hmm. So we are only now starting to get into the, to women who are having regular periods, who may be focusing on this a little bit more. So let me ask you this, and I'm going to play the role of a patient here who says to you, well, Dr. Fairbrother, you are my physician. I trust you, but I need to know who do you trust? What information are you following to make sure you're relaying that to me? Because now when it comes to those who are hesitant to get the vaccine, we are hearing about the importance of family physicians, not politicians, not even public health officials. So we're hearing that doctors have to play a primary role. In, and what do you say to that patient? That is, that is a fantastic question. And you're the first patient to ask me that. But I will tell you, I listen to Dr. Fauci. I go automatically to my organization, my parent organization, ACOG. Mm -hmm. And that really, they have really been doing a fantastic job collating the information, putting it forward. Just this past month, um, the New England Journal of Medicine published an article about pregnancy. We are starting to gather information and follow patients. I look to my other patients. You know, I will tell you that probably 50% of my obstetric patients in my practice are have been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. I have my patients, regardless of um, race, they are generally a highly educated group of patients. And they have done their research and they've gotten themselves vaccinated. I will tell you the majority of women in my practice who are not vaccinated don't do don't do it not because they don't believe in the vaccine, but because it's an emotional decision and they're still a bit worried. So it comes out of emotion. How do you address that emotional decision? What do you say to them? I mean, so first of all, I I kind of try to act, make it real for them. And in the beginning, I used to say, well, how many people do you think have this vaccine? Mm -hmm. And they'll give me some lowball number, like 2 million. I was like, how about, how about 20 million? This was way back in the, would, does that make you feel better? It's like, oh, I had no idea. Now when I'm saying, we, it's well over a billion people have received this vaccine. Mm -hmm. Well over, you know, we're pushing, I think, 230 plus million shots in this country. There's 100,000 women who've been pregnant, no adverse outcomes. I said, at some point, you have to have a line in the sand where you say, there's enough data out there 
for me to be able to make a reasonable decision. I said, if there was going to be a big problem, we'd know about it by now. Mm -hmm. And I said, but I understand, you know, there's nothing more important than your child when you're pregnant. And so I, I tell them, okay, that's fine. You're going to wait till after you deliver, but you've got to maintain strict, strict social distancing, wear a mask when you're outside, be around people who are vaccinated, make sure you're protected by your own little herd, mm -hmm. hand washing, do all that. And then hopefully you'll get vaccinated, but it's a big lift now, now that the masking requirement is starting to be removed. We, we don't know who's really wearing a mask or who's going maskless and are, is it because they're vaccinated? The voice you hear is Dr. Genevieve Fairbrother, an OBGYN specialist here in Atlanta, Georgia. And we're talking about some of the mixed messaging, or quite frankly, the wrong information that's being circulated via social media and some other outlets as relates to the COVID-19 vaccine and its effect on women. Do you think that with the recent relaxation of the mask wearing for the fully vaccinated, do you think there was some messaging that was missed by whether the CDC or the public health officials, do you think that messaging could have been more specific for some folks? I think as far as masking and unmasking is concerned, I think history's gonna be our judge, whether we went too soon or not. One of the biggest concerns I have is that a lot of people think that, well, I had COVID back in December, so mm -hmm. I should be protected. What I try to tell those patients is, well, back in December, the primary variant was not the UK variant. But here in Georgia right now, it's the UK variant, which is 50% more contagious and has um, a worse hospital course. So when that happens and you get COVID again, mm -hmm. how are you going to feel in respect to your lack of masking? And who are you going to give that to? I wanna say about the messaging, mm -hmm. I think there's throughout this, pandemic, we've had some missteps with messaging. I think the WHO has made some missteps with respect to pregnant women and not to get off on a, you know, why are women always last kind of thing. It's one thing to say women, we don't recommend it for women who are pregnant. And it's another thing to say, we don't have enough information yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way to go. Now, I think the thing is, is it all comes down to trust with this vaccine and are people who are not wearing masks, can you trust them on the honor code to take off their mask and truly be vaccinated and be one week out minimum from their second shot? And is that a country culture mm -hmm. or is it me first? In your practice and in, in you all still require everyone to wear a mask, even if they, even if you know they're fully vaccinated, you you just told me you're fully vaccinated. You still are going to have those guidelines in place. Yeah. Then, in fact, if you read the fine print in the CDC guideline, it does not apply to hospitals, medical offices. It does not apply in prisons or in areas where people have to be. <laughs> I think if it's optional to go into a restaurant or a bar. People don't have a choice when they go into a doctor's office and it's a more vulnerable place. Mm -hmm. So because of that, we all mask up, we're modeling good behavior. We are not going to change that. Masks are de rigueur in our practice and all of Atlanta Women's Health Group until things really 
are beaten down into the ground and we put this pandemic behind us. I, I will tell you, I'm concerned. The Indian variant, mm -hmm. uh, I think anybody that turns on the news today has been heartbroken by what happens in India right now. Mm -hmm. I know the Indian variant is already in the UK. My suspicion is it's probably already here. The vaccines are only moderately effective against this variant. I think we need to expect a booster in our future. And just like you get a new flu shot every year because that has mutated, this thing is mutating. Mm -hmm. And so natural immunity does not protect you because you don't know what your immune system decided to make an antibody to. The key about the spike protein is that's the how the virus gets into your cells to infect them. And if they mutate that too much, it may become ineffective. So mm -hmm. there is a evolutionary pressure for that to be conserved. So that's why the vaccines are the best way to go. And finally, Dr. Fairbrother, what is your message to women? You are a OBGYN specialist, doctor, you see patients. This is your message to someone out there. We're focusing on women for right now. Uh, who's listening? What do you want them to know? I want them to know that we've given out the vaccine in our practice. We went through the trouble. It is a burden on our practice to do this, but we did it because we believe in it. We all got vaccinated as soon as we could, and we wanted to provide it to our patients and their families. We don't charge people for it, and we wanted them because we think it is that important. And I want all people to have an opportunity to get vaccinated so that we can beat this thing down. I'll tell you one more thing that I think is out there. Sure. You know, I really feel like we're failing our black population, especially young women. I will tell you the 40 year old African-American woman is gonna be like, yeah, I'm getting vaccinated. I know what's happening in my community. The younger woman isn't. But what I've started to see, which I love, and I don't know how, how else to put it, is I call it the granny brigade. Mm -hmm. And the grannies, like I wanted to visit my granny this summer, but she told me I couldn't come until I got vaccinated. <laughs> like where I fail, granny wins. And I'm like, if that is one thing that I think is making a difference, you know? So I do want to see everybody get vaccinated. It's, it's an emotional thing for me to see people suffering. Mm. And if we can reduce that in this country by everybody getting the vaccine, I think it'll. I think it's going to change. This history will be our judge, though, how we do. Not to put you on the spot, but you just said this was emotional for you, and you teared up a little bit. Yeah, I. It is. You know, very early on, one of my partners, who's African American, her uncle died, and it was horrifying for me to think that her aunt who had COVID drove her husband to the hospital and let him off and never saw him again and convalesced at home by herself and while her husband died in a hospital and that to me just stri strips us of our humanity I I give me a sec it's okay. Take your time, Dr. Fairbrother. And I've had, I've had friends of mine um, who have family in India where it is desperate right now. And they've had people die 
and they want to get out. I've had my family in England come down with COVID. And in England, they took a vaccinate everybody once, just like, let us get out, get on top of this. And I was, I've been somewhat frustrated with what felt like a very slow rollout. But it's emotional because, you know, as a physician, you're trained to, to comfort, you know, heal the sick mind and body, right? Mm -hmm. We came out of the religious traditions many, many years ago. And, and I'm talking like, the 13th century kind of <laughs> gotcha. And we came out of those traditions of if we cannot heal, we can at least provide um, comfort. And this disease is challenging and lonely. That is distressing. And I think that there's not as much of a recognition because of the emotional toll uh, on nurses mm -hmm. and those healthcare workers that are out there that are in this uh, field, because we, we not just sympathize with people's plights, we empathize with them. So anyway, I mean, that's just my personal, I, you know, no, that's, and that's what I believe listeners want to hear. Guests be honest and authentic and someone as an expert as you are. Dr. Genevieve Fairbrother is an OBGYN specialist here in Atlanta. She's affiliated with Northside Hospital and is the chief medical officer of the Atlanta Women's Health Group and is a board member of the U.S. Women's Health Alliance. Dr. Fairbrother, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. I really appreciate it. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on the ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.